This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today we have a news update and commentary from Fulton Lewis Jr. as it aired over the Mutual Network on September 18th, 1942. Lewis delivered his commentaries five nights a week over Mutual throughout the 1940s. At the peak of his popularity, Lewis was heard over more than 500 radio stations with an estimated audience of more than 15 million listeners. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our episodes. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. from the studios of radio station WOL in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We have no communicator tonight here, either from the Army or the Navy. The reports from Australia are that the Japanese troops in New Guinea are continuing to move slowly toward Port Moresby, easing down the jungle-covered slopes of the mountains there, and they're now some 55 to 60 miles away from that important naval-based city. Military and naval circles here say that they do not consider the situation in New Guinea to be critical. A War Department spokesman told me late this afternoon that an Army officer who has just come back from New Guinea reports that the Japs performed quite a feat in getting through the passes of the Owen Stanley Mountains there in New Guinea and making their way through the jungles on the south side of the mountains as far as they have. He reported that they have been able to bring some machine guns and even some mortars through uh, the jungle with them. Now, that's only part of their problem. In that jungle, they have plenty of protection. But the jungle doesn't stretch all the way to Port Moresby by any means. It stops about halfway between their present positions and their goal. And from there on, after it stops, it's open country, and it becomes necessary for the Japanese to expose themselves to the tanks and artillery and the defenses of the defending Australian forces. And the expectation here seems to be that that is when an entirely different story will begin to unfold. The chief uneasiness here at the present time seems to be in connection with the Solomon Islands. Not about any immediate present activity in those Solomon Islands, but rather about possibilities for the future. They say there are strong indications from various sources that the Japs are preparing to make a mass effort to recapture those islands. They say that there are signs of Japanese naval units concentrating in the direction of the Solomons and troop concentrations at points from which an attack could be launched. There also are concentrations of, inv of invasion equipment reported. All of that merely bears out expectations. I don't think there's a soul in the entire high command of the Army or Navy who hasn't expected this Japanese comeback from the very day that the American Marines took over the Solomon. But don't forget that we're not letting any grass grow in those islands in the matter of bolstering defenses and preparing to ward off that comeback. 
Let me tell you, as one who knows firsthand, there is no more brilliant, more capable, more fighting, or more Japanese-hating officer in the world today than the Major General who's in command of those Solomon Island Marines. Major General Archer A. Vandegrift, Alexander A. Vandegrift. I know what I'm talking about on that score because it happens that he's a very close neighbor, has been one, a uh, very close neighbor of mine, one of my closest personal friends for more than 12 years. A great deal of bunkum has been written about his being a Virginia hillbilly and about his saying that when he retires, he wants to go back to the Virginia hills and eat hog meat and hominy. That is trash. The truth is that he's one of the most cultured gentlemen I've ever known. He came from Charlottesville, Virginia, which instead of being hillbilly is the home of Thomas Jefferson and the University of Virginia, one of the most distinguished cultural centers in America. His wife, who is as charming and lovely a lady as ever came from Virginia soil, came from Lynchburg. General Vandegrift, he's known through the service by his middle name, Archer, which you heard me just call him, went to the famous VMI, the immortal Virginia Military Institute, which is steeped in traditions of valor. He spent some time in China, and that's where he learned to cordially mistrust and thoroughly despise the whole Japanese race, but particularly the Japanese military. I remember one occasion about which he told me while he was there. Whenever the American Marine planes there in China would be on practice operations, notice would be sent to all other military contingents there, the French, German, English, and Japanese, so that they would stay away. And all except the Japs always complied meticulously. Always, however, the Japanese would send out spotters and scouts to watch what our flyers were doing. It was called to their attention repeatedly, until it continued, until one day the Marine planes, instead of going on with their operations when the Japanese onlookers arrived, they turned on the Japanese kibitzes, shall we call them, zoomed at them from all sides, barely missing them, until the Japs turned tail and scurried home. That was the last bit of trouble. In appearance, Major General Vandegrift is just about what you'd expect a real fighting Marine Corps Major General to look like. He's medium height, his body might be made of fine-tempered spring steel. He has sharp blue eyes. When they smile, they have tremendous charm, but when they go military, they're the most precise, cold, icy eyes that you could ever imagine. A grim, handsome person and a great officer. The Japanese will find out just how great as soon as they begin tangling with him. And it will be a very expensive bit of schooling for them. You can rest assured of that. Now, as for doings here at home, the War Production Board finally announced tonight officially that Mr. Henry J. Kaiser, the shipbuilder and bridge builder and dam builder extraordinary, the general magician from the Pacific Coast, he has finally gotten what he has been fighting for over these past weeks here in Washington. Mr. Kaiser is on his way back to California tonight with a government contract in his pocket to build three 150-ton supercargo planes and to lay out a production line to turn those planes out in quantity if the first models prove successful and if the planes are needed. The largest thing in the world today, as you probably know, is the flying boat to Mars, which is about 70 tons. I told you just a week ago tonight that Mr. Donald M. Nelson had decided to award that contract for three ships and for the production line, even over the selfish opposition of terrific pressure that has been brought on him. The old established aircraft industry in a large part has fought Mr. Kaiser's program and has tried in every possible way to block it. Rather a disillusioning fact. But fortunately, Mr. Nelson refused to play their game. I might add that it took tremendous courage and forcefulness and integrity on his part, too, to go through with this in 
you the, the amount of opposition that there was and the sources from which that opposition came. But he did, and so all the rest of it is water over the dam. Mr. Kaiser is going to get his trial. The first ship is scheduled to be completed in 15 months. That's the schedule. I'd be willing to bet that it'll be, well, that the first ship will be flying long before that time. Mr. Kaiser's motto is that schedules are made to be broken. When he began building surface vessels, these 10,000-ton Liberty ships in January of this year. As I told you the other night, the average time for completing those Liberty ships was 240 days from keel laying to delivery. 240 days. He turned one over to the government a week or so ago in just 28 days from the time the keel was laid to delivery. And he and his son, Henry Jr., who run the yard in, in which that one was built, told me today that that's much too slow. They said that they've got to speed up production a lot more if we're going to get these materials over to the other side. So heaven knows what sort of a record is going to be set before they get through. The point is that if they did that on 10,000-ton cargo ships, it really doesn't seem necessary to worry too much about that 15 months. Incidentally, Mr. Kaiser signed this contract today on the basis of these planes costing $18 million for the three of them. But the contract provides that he will not accept a single penny of profit out of any one of the three. If they cost any less than $18 million, the saving goes back to the United States government. From my own selfish standpoint, there's one tiny little disappointment in this announcement tonight. I had made arrangements with Mr. Donald Nelson and Mr. Kaiser for both of them to be here with me on this program this evening to announce the news to you in person over this microphone. Unfortunately, Mr. Nelson was called suddenly out of town this morning, so that little arrangement had to be canceled. But it makes no difference. The important thing is that those supercargo ships are going to be tried. And that means that progress and enterprise and good American pioneer spirit, those are the policies that are controlling the War Production Board's administration of the war program, and not the forces of obstructionism and selfishness and blind slavery to the ideas and methods of the past. I believe that the whole American nation will stand and cheer thoroughly and loudly for Mr. Nelson and Mr. Kaiser and waste them both Godspeed on this program. Mr. James Lawrence Fly, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, went before that Senate committee today, which is investigating the musicians' union ban against music recording. That's the same case I told you about last night, the one where Mr. James Petrillo, head of the American Federation of Musicians, has stopped all union musicians from playing for commercial recording, making any phonograph record. Mr. Fly already has made it very clear that he most emphatically is not in sympathy with Mr. Petrillo's order. But today he presented figures to show what this order, if it is not withdrawn, will do to the radio broadcasting industry. The substance of what he said was that Mr. Petrillo may succeed in blacking out large sections of the nation so far as radio broadcasting is concerned. You remember that Mr. Petrillo's order is aimed primarily at radio stations. He wants them to hire musicians instead of playing recordings, the idea being that in that way more musicians would get jobs. That isn't the way Mr. Fly figured it out today, however. He said that if Petrillo makes this order stick, the United States will be able to support only a handful of radio stations. The result would be, of course, that a lot of those stations now in operation would have to go off the air completely. Mr. Fly presented sworn statements and figures to prove his conclusions. He said that 40% of all the broadcast time now is being taken up by music, that if the broadcasting industry is prevented from getting recordings, scores of stations just won't have any music because they will not be able to afford live musicians, and in many, many cities, there are no musicians, union musicians particularly, to hire. Mr. 
Mr. Bly said that a station cannot be run just on solid talk, and therefore these stations just can't stay in business. He stressed the importance of the broadcasting industry to the war effort, and he told the committee that this threat against it will have to be solved, and solved quickly. As for the anti-inflation legislation, it apparently will be ready for formal consideration in the Senate on Monday and in the House of Representatives on Tuesday. The Senate committee that's been handling that legislation announced tonight that it has finished its draft. It has until tomorrow night to file the legislation with the Senate proper, and the actual debate will begin on Monday at noon. In final form, the Senate bill is a sort of compromise on the matter of ceilings over farm prices. There's been some talk, you know, about a ceiling on farm prices. It would be adjustable to take care of probable increases in the cost of farm labor. As I reported to you last night, the President has written letters to Democratic leaders in Congress opposing that, so the final legislation today merely provided that the President may change the farm price ceilings if he sees fit to take care of wage changes in farm labor or to meet any growth in equity. The wage stabilization program is just as it has been. It provides that wages shall be set at the level of September the 15th, except the President also may readjust them to meet inequities. That's the top of the news as it looks from here, ladies and gentlemen. Until tomorrow evening, good night. <laughs>